We're going to look at something uh, that you may have not considered recently, and that's going to be on sacrifice versus obedience. So, with that in mind, let's look at Micah, or Micah, chapter 6, a classic passage. Let's start with verse 5. My people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled. And what did Balaam, son of Beor, answer him? And for Shittim to Gilgal, in order that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. In order that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come to the Lord? And bow myself, bow myself before the God on high. Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? With yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams? In 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? The fruit of my body? For the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Classic passage from Mika. And the title of this message is, What Does God Want From Me? What does God want from me? It's a question we often hear from different people. And in order to facilitate an understanding of what does God want from me, we need to look at the context from which Micah uh, is formulating his material. And if we're going to look at the prophetic content, we're going to look uh, real briefly at a couple of things in Micah that, that talk about the problems that took place in Micah's time. Micah was a prophet commissioned by the Lord to correct social and religious abuses being committed by the southern kingdom of Judah. And to some extent, the lesser kingdom, uh, the lesser extent, the northern kingdom of Israel. Micah, or Micah, ministered in the 8th century BCE from 725 to 700, so he had about 25 years of ministry. Uh, Isaiah was his contemporary who ministered 742 to 680s and ministered nearly 100 years before Jeremiah, the last prophet, until the exile. And Jeremiah ministered from 627 to 586 and beyond in Egypt. Now, Micah was born in Morashet, called Morashet Gat, was located near the Philistine city of God. That's about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Micah may have joined Isaiah in becoming a public pariah. He may have walked naked as commanded by the Lord. Find that in Micah 1.8 and Isaiah 22-3 for Isaiah. So it's not exactly an easy life to be a prophet. What about the political context of Micah? Micah prophesied during the reigns of unrighteous King Ahaz, the last nine years of his reign, followed by righteous King Hezekiah from 716 to 700, or 16 years during his reign. Uh, fortunately, Micah was able to minister during Hezekiah's reforms, and that was, that was great. And he got to miss out of Manasseh, which was the, wicked, the most wicked king that Judah ever had, who was incidentally Hezekiah's son. How about the social-religious context? Micah denounced the ethical and moral sins, as most prophets did. Uh, the continuous problem was false theology, where the people thought that God would never allow his, his house to be destroyed. Never thought that would ever happen. That was the problem. Jeremiah encountered the same problems nearly 100 years later, when the people said, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So we see that still have a problem. The wealthy were oppressing the vulnerable and the poor. 
The merchants swindled their customers. Priests relaxed the stipulations of the Torah. False prophets sprung up saying, peace, peace. Hey, does that sound like today? Corruption was rampant. Both Israel and Judah were plagued by foreign deities from Egypt, Mesopotamia, Assyria, Babylon, all kinds of areas, Philistia. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the gods and goddesses became so numerous by Jeremiah 100 years later that Jeremiah 2, 28 says, For as many as a number of your cities are your gods. What if you had 500 cities? 500 gods. It's pretty bad. Canaanite, Philistine, Egyptian, Syrian, Assyrian, Babylon, all these deities are being worshipped along with the Lord. So if these social sins involved, let's take a look at some of the things that uh, was going on in Micah's time. If, look at Micah chapter 1, verse 5. We've got to look at the context before we get to the, the text itself. Micah 1, 5, rebellion against the Lord. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Jude? Is it not Jerusalem? Idolatry. Look at verse 7. Our idols will be smashed. Our earnings will be burned with fire. Our images I will make desolate. For she collected from these a harlot's earnings. And in the earnings of a harlot, they will return. There's evil citizens in society. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They cover fields and then seize them. In houses, they take them away, for they rob a man of his house, a man and his inheritance. Pride, look at 2.3. Thus says the Lord God, I am planning evil against this family, a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will, not walk, or you will not walk pridefully, for it will be an evil time. We had pride going on in society. Robbery, look at 2.8. Recently, my people have risen as an enemy. You stripped the robe off the garment from unsuspecting passerby, from those who return from war. So we see robbery going on. There's abuse of the poor, the abuse of the vulnerable. Look at 2.9. The women of my people you evict, each one from a pleasant house. From her children, you take my splendor forever. All right. If you look, at, uh, if you look also uh, in two eleven, you see lying and alcohol abuse in two eleven. If a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, "I will speak to you out of concerning wine and liquor," he would be the spokesman to this people. How about political corruption and abuse? Look at chapter three, verses one to four. I said, hear now, heads of Jacob, the rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know uh, justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them and break their bones and chop them up in pieces as meat in a kettle? Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time. So he's talking about the priests abusing the people. Look at verse 9 and 10. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice, who twist everything that is right, who built Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent justice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. Her prophets divine for many. 
Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will surely not come upon us. And then we see greed from every factor of society, from 311, priests instruct for price, prophets divine for money, everything, bribe. And then finally, we have religion devoid of substance. Look at 311. Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. There's greed in every side. And then we also have business corruption. Look at chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. Yet is there a man in a wicked house along with treasures of wickedness and a short measure that is cursed? Can I justify wicked scales, a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies. Their tongue is, in, is, is deceitful in their mouth. And finally, there's total fabric break, uh, breakdown. If you look at chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Woe is me, for I am like the fruit prickers and the grape gatherers. Is there not a cluster of grapes to eat or first ripe fig, which I crave? The godly person has perished from the land. There is no upright person among them. All them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other for a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks also the judge for a bride, and a great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. Look at that. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is like a thorn hedge. The day in which you post a watchman, your punishment will come. Look at verse 5. Do not trust in neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her lies in your bosom. Guard your lips, for the son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his old household. Of course, you've probably read that in Bread High Shaway. She will use those very words. So we looked, there's breakdown, there is sin in every part, every facet of society. So with that in mind, let's look at Micah 6, verse 5 to 8. And we will go verse by verse. So he says, My people, verse 5, remember now how Balak, king of Moab, counseled what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. And for Shittim to give Gal, so you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Look at that. So you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. You, know, you could summarize that in using six R's. Rightly remembering the righteous acts and respond with righteous repentance. <laughs> the three, six R's there. Rightly remembering the righteous acts and respond with righteous repentance. Now, it says my people. He uses the word ami. My people, Ami, he still loves his people dearly, even though they're in sin and they're and they're they're practicing idolatry. There's social ills everywhere. There's political violence. There's social fabric breakdown. He says Ami, my people, remember now, Zakhar Na. Now this is an interesting phrase. The 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 suffix Na on there, you know that word, has, is a, a title entreaty. It's basically saying. Please, please, please remember Zakar. Remember now, please. The semantic range of meaning is a, it's a form, as a particle of entreaty and excitement, and the verbs denoting please. It denotes, it denotes a, a polite form of asking. My dear people, please now remember with fond memory what Balak, what did the Balak and Balaam, was well, the whole story? Do you remember the fact that Balak says, Balaam, go and curse my people. What came out of his mouth? A blessing, not a curse. Remember my people what I did. 
So we're to remember, and this is important for us today, remembering the past faithfulness of Adonai helps us to know and trust in the present and future faithfulness of God when in need or distress. Let me say that again. Remembering the past, the past faithfulness of the Lord, helps us to know and trust in the present and the future faithfulness of God when we are in need or distress. Now that you may know me. The word know is the word da'at. Da'at, the semantic range of meaning is knowledge, discernment, learning, insight. This doubt is used here in the sense of knowing through personal experience. It's not just intellectual. It's not a knowing about facts. It's knowing him personally. Knowing him personally. It is a call for his people to exercise memory and as an act of kavanah or intentionality to relive, relive, relive through a past repository of personal experience. To know, to discern how God has blessed his people and turned would-be curses by her, by her enemies into blessings. This verb zakar is found all over in the book, a book of Deuteronomy, Devarim. Remembering is an important facet in, in our faith. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 17, it says this, If you should say in your heart, These nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw. And then from chapter 8, verse 2, Deuteronomy, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. So to remember. So God is first calling them to remember. Before we get to this passage about what shall I bring before the Lord to bring offerings, we need to understand what Micah's setting up there. He's setting up, remember the past so that you'll have a good answer coming up. Because it's not just, well, I'll do a few things here and I'll be fine. It's actually, he's building on this case in verse, in verse 5. And then he says, remember the righteous acts. Okay, the righteous acts of Adonai. Sidkot Adonai. All right? It's a plural suffix of sadaka. It means uh, from rightness, moral virtue, justice, righteousness, or blameless acts. That's what's translated here, blameless acts. This noun describes justice, right actions, right attitudes, right judgments. Right? <laughs> Judah and Israel was politely asked by the Lord to remember how righteously he showed his benevolence toward them. The expected action was for his people in the southern kingdom to remember what he has done for them and do to Teshuvah, to turn, repent, Teshuvah. And then we get to our passage in, in, in context here. Verse 6, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings with yearling calves? So the question you might ask right now is, well, who's asking this question? Is someone in the audience asking this question? Is the Lord asking this question? Perhaps Mika is asking this question. Who's asking the question? I mean, I suggest that this question is anticipated by Micah and that it would be the typical person living in Judah. And the second thing you notice, it's a question. It says, with what shall I come about myself for the Lord on high? Uh, that's rather interesting because it's almost like a trigger reaction. Okay, I've done all this evil. I've caught with my hands uh, stained with blood. I've robbed. I've killed. I've stolen. I've treated the poor poorly. All these things, and now what am I going to do then? I know. 
I know all these other gods that I worship, I give sacrifice. That's it. God wants a sacrifice. That's what he wants, a sacrifice. And so Micah anticipates this, and so this is his first question. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings and yearly calves? So he said the word, I come to the Lord, Akadem Adonai. The word kadam has a meaning, a various shades of meaning, including to project or present oneself, to come or go before, to anticipate, to meet before, to present. The word may suggest anticipation before we get there. Anticipate. What's, what's God want? What does God want from me? It's an anticipatory word. You're participating. You're anticipating what's going to happen. In many synagogues, right above their own HaKodesh, is the word, know before whom you stand. Would that make a difference in our worship if we took that to heart? If, well, put it this way. What if Yeshua was seated on a chair? Would that make a difference in how we worship and how we serve? Probably would, wouldn't it? Know before whom you stand. This can be applied here. Know before whom you stand. It's not another God. They worship all kinds of gods, not this one. Know before whom you stand. It's clearly inscribed above the holy ark with Torah scrolls, a house of many synagogues. Now, you notice they say, what shall I come? It's probably the people of Judah collectively. Probably all the people using I. And you notice that even uh, Micah includes himself. He said, I. But really, it's more like a we. It has the effect that I'm not leaving myself out of community. And we need to see ourselves in community rather more than me. Howard's always saying it's not about you, not about me. It's about us collectively, about him. So the whole idea of I really is more of a collective we in a sense that uh, we are involved. But he's asking the question anyway. So we have, there's a personal as well as communal responsibility to come before the Lord and new teshuvah, to repent, to turn. Mika the prophet does not exclude himself. Now, so I think this word is something more. The word denotes an anticipation or self-reflecting or wondering, what does God want from me? What does he want? Often this word is used in connection with appearing before someone for help or assistance from somebody. The phrase with what begins a sentence and appears that the one coming before the Lord may not know what is expected of him. What, what do I expect? There's some anticipation of offering something to God. We read in Exodus 23, 15, 34, 20, and 16, 16, the phrase, no one has appeared before me empty-handed. So there is a, there is a, a thing to say about this. We don't want to come before God empty-handed. But with what is the question? Well, he starts out by saying, with burnt offerings, with yearly calves, ba'alot bagalim. And the word ba'alot uh, uh, is a singular, means that which goes up, ola, that which goes up, burnt, that which rises up. Calves, egaglim, of course, are the primary animal sacrifice used in these sacrifices. Remember, King David said, I will not sacrifice what costs me nothing. So there is something to be said about sacrifices, but is this what God wants from me? Is this what God wants from, from Mika's, Mika's people there? And then the second question, does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams? Thousands of rams? How about 10,000 rivers of oil? A little bit of exaggeration, right? Thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil. Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? The fruit of my body? 
for the sin of my soul? Hmm, probing question. So what does Lord take the light? We know it's a question because it's got a prefix hatef pata, which asks the question. Adelaide takes delight. What is he pleased in? The word ratsa has a semantic range of meaning to be pleased with, to accept, to treat favorably, to delight in, to favor, even to pay off a debt. Hmm. Does the Lord take delight in these tens of thousands of offerings? Notice that the question being posed here assumes the Lord is pleased with sacrifices from the hands of men, that he wants something. I mean, after all, all the gods want something. If I have a need, I just go to this God and give a sacrifice. If I, if my wife needs to, if we want to have a child and she can't have one, I go to the God of futility. If, if I need finances, I go to this God or this God or this God. And they want sacrifices. In order to be heard by their God, I have to do something extravagant to get the God's attention. Or I've got to do something in order to, that's a quid pro quo. God, if you do this, I'll do that kind of a thing. And then finally, sacrifices were given just to, just to appease an angry God. Wrathful God. But here, here the idea is, what does God expect of me? But can we give God anything that he doesn't already own? It's interesting how we want to give God a sacrifice when he owns everything anyway. So it's, it's a misunderstanding of that. Perhaps the exaggeration, thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil. Uh, perhaps this is what, like what happened in a Solomonic temple where King Shlomo offered in volume. Remember in 1 Kings 8, 63, I'll read that. Solomon offered for the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the sons of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. For the bronze altar was before the Lord was too small to hold the burnt offerings and grain offerings and the fat of the peace offerings. So perhaps the idea of ten thousands and thousands here, this exaggerated number, Harkens back to Solomon's day. Is this what God has pleased just sacrifices? So if we look at these, uh, these uh, thousands and ten thousand of sacrifices, the rams and olive oil constitute the type of sacrifice to present for the Lord. So rams, olive oil, that's a type of sacrifice. Thousands and ten thousands of, that's the quantity of the sacrifice. The firstborn, should I get my firstborn? For my sin and my soul, institutes the the quality or the costliness of the sacrifice. Food of my body for the sin of my soul is the exchange rate. Can I give this for that? So we have the type of sacrifice, rams and olive oil. The quantity is thousands and ten thousands. The quality or the costliness of the sacrifice is my firstborn offered. And finally, there's an exchange. Food of my body for the sin of my soul is like an exchange rate there. So the question at hand was, what does God require of me to do to Shuvah, turning back to God, or repentance? Over a hundred years later, Jeremiah discloses a similar concern over vain sacrifices. Now, Joshua Heschel has an interesting thing to say about what happened in Micah's day. Great book, if you have not read it, called The Prophets, Abraham Joshua Heschel. And page, top of page 13, he says, The prophet knew that religion could distort what the Lord demanded of man. That priests themselves had committed perjury by bearing false witness, condoning violence, tolerating hatred, calling for ceremonies instead of bursting forth with wrath and indignation at cruelty, deceit, idolatry, and violence. To the people, religion was a temple. Priesthood, incense. 
Such piety, Jeremiah brands as fraud and illusion. Behold, you trust in the scepter words to no avail. In Jeremiah 7, 8, worship preceded, worship preceded or followed by evil acts becomes absurdity. The holy place is doomed when people indulge in unholy deeds. In other words, the thought is, if I just give a sacrifice, maybe God will be pleased. That's what the thought was. I just give a sacrifice. Now, what's fascinating, in several places, now you don't have to turn here, I'll, I'll read them for you. Uh, the Lord did not address sacrifices on the Mount of Egypt. You know that? Sacrifice was not the thing that God wanted off the bat. Sacrifices came a little bit later. In Deuteronomy 6, 1 to 3, now this is the commandments, the statutes, the judgments with the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do the land where you're going to possess, so that you and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes, his commandments, which I'm commanding you today, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen to me careful to do it. Do you hear any sacrifice words in there? There's no sacrifice in that. All right, well, let's look at Exodus 15, 26. He said, if you'll give earnest heed to the voice of your Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments, keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases which you have had put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Again, do you hear any mention of sacrifice? No sacrificial words at all. And then what's really poignant is in Jeremiah 7, 21 to 24, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifice and eat flesh. Go ahead and have the common person eat these sacrificial animals. Only the priest is supposed to eat them, right? Go ahead and eat them. No, no problem. It's useless anyway. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt saying concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. We say it again. I did not speak to your fathers or command them the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is where I commanded them, saying, and this is the verse of Exodus 15, we just got the reading. Obey my voice, and I will be your God. You will be my people. And you will walk in all the way which I command you that may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their own evil heart, went backwards, not forwards. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I've sent you all my servants to prophets, rising early, sending them. Yet they did not listen to me, incline the ear, but stiffened their neck, and they did more evil than their fathers. So we see right off the bat that there's no mention of sacrifice in these passages. That wasn't what God was after. Now, in the, in the, in the world in which Micah found himself, the people had many gods, and they required sacrifices. You just look throughout history of the world, you'll find sacrifices, usually human sacrifice. And people always uh, laud about how wonderful, how a lot of technology coming out of these places, how wonderful they were. Yeah, let's look at that. The Aztecs, great, great calendar, fantastic kinds of technology. What did they do? Human sacrifice galore, a bloody people. Nazi Germany. Fabulous, way ahead of everyone in terms of technology. Gee, I mentioned, you all know the answer there. Look at the Holocaust that was perpetrated by, by Hitler. So we see that just because you have the technology doesn't mean that you're a godly nation. And so here, sacrifice is what they thought God wanted. The people was familiar with sacrifice because their gods required sacrifice. Uh, Moloch required your sons to pass through the fire. So if that was taken literally, that meant that their sons and daughters were uh, cast into the fire for the sake of Baal, or, or for, for Moloch as well. 
So now, if the first thought of what does God expect of me is sacrifice, then you and I can perceive that we're relying upon a spirit of religiosity, a deluded spirit whereby we can offer something from our own hands to solve our sin problem. If our first thought is, okay, God's caught me doing this sin, well, maybe I'll make up to him by doing this, a sacrifice. But a sacrifice doesn't work in that regard. He wants repentance and a genuine change of heart. Sacrifice was never designed to replace obedience, loyalty, and love for the Lord. Consider the following passage, and you're probably familiar with this from 1 Samuel 15, 22-23. Shmuel, or Samuel, said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than a fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Perhaps you want another. How about Isaiah 1, 10 to 17? What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? Now, wait a minute. I thought God wanted sacrifice, but not up front, right? What need do I have your multiplied sacrifice? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this of this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Shabbat, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. You can't give sacrifice, but live the way you please, unrighteous, and expect God to hear you. It's pointless. He's saying, bring those no longer to me. David's confession, perhaps in Psalm 51, verse 15, 16. For you do not delight in sacrifice, David wrote, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. How about Solomon's insight about righteousness and sacrifices? In Proverbs 21, verse 3, to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Now, the relationship between obedience and sacrifice is analogous to the trade engine, the caboose. You all remember cabooses, right? They don't have cabooses anymore, but they used to. They just have a light now at the end of the thing. They used to have a caboose at the end of trains. Think of sacrifice as the caboose. Doing righteousness, justice, and loving kindness is the engine. God does not want you to offer the caboose first. A caboose can never drive a train, can it? But the engine can, and that's what we want. We want obedience, not sacrifice. In verse 8, we have the answer to the question now. What does God have expect of me? Micah does not provide his hearers with some new revelation. Oh, Micah, do you have something new to tell us? Is that something new? No, no, nothing new. He does not provide a new sacrifice to misincorporate. Oh, here's a new sacrifice to do. Nope. He doesn't offer any substitutions for obedience at all. Remember, Micah hearkens a blast into the past, an ancient path back to God expressed by Moshe in the Torah. Go back to Torah, basically. In verse 8 of Micah 6, he has told you, O man, what is good. This tells us it's not something new. This is not a new revelation. This is something already written by Moshe in the Torah. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God.
He has told you, Hagid Lacha. The hippo verb with the meaning to tell, declare, explain from the word Magid. Does that sound familiar, Magid? In the, in the Passover festival, the Pesach, Magid, the telling of the, of the Egyptian uh, 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 being taken out of Egypt, Magid. Here the verb form is a hippo stem or expresses causative action with an active voice. We could translate this verb as, he has caused you to listen to his telling. Could be a way to, to translate that. He has caused you to listen to his telling. Adonai has not left his people in the dark. He's already told us and caused us to hear his requirements. And what has he told us or required from us? Well, in order to look at that again, perhaps some other, other passages might help us here. In your Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. We're going, and keep your finger in Deuteronomy because we are going to see a few verses here. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? Does he say sacrifice? No. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and keep the Lord's commandments and statutes which I am commanding you today for your own good. So, how do I those words? Fear him, walk in his ways, Love him, serve him, and guard his words. Okay? He'll show us what, what he wants. Turn to the next chapter, Deuteronomy 11, 22 to 23. For if you are careful to keep all this commandment which I am commanding you, to love the Lord your God, to walk on his ways, to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive all these nations. So here he uses walk in his ways, love him, guard his words, and then he uses the word dabach. To cling to him, to cling to him. In Deuteronomy 13, 3 to 4, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams. The Lord your God is testing you to find out if you really do love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God, fear him. You shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. Fear him, follow him, love him. Serve him, guard and listen to him, and debak to cling to him. And then finally, Deuteronomy 30, and it will be down on Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 and following. Look at verse 20. By loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, by holding fast to him, for this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to give your fathers, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, to give them. So in this one, we have walk in his ways, love him, serve him, obeying his voice, cling to him. Have you seen any word about sacrifice? Has sacrifice been mentioned at all? Not in these passages. That's not the main drive of what God wants from us. Mika encapsulizes these ideas of what is good, or tov, from the list of Deuteronomy's fear, walk, love, Serve, follow, guard, and listen, and, and cling to him as those, those sets of words. Not only for that, he wants us to do justice. Im asot mishpat. Im asot mishpat. The semantic range of this is, is to do, asa, is to do, to carry out, to perform. It's not an intellectual exercise as much an action verb. He wants us to do righteousness, not think about. We can think about doing righteousness or justice all day long without ever having doing it. But to do them 
It, it has the idea of a personal commitment to. So we have to carry them out. Good intentions are not enough. Justice or mishpat means a verdict pronounced judicially, a sentence of formal decree, a right, a privilege, a justice. This word carries the idea of rendering justice to another. It is often found with associate words like righteousness, sidikenu. This word focuses upon man rendering justice toward fellow man, the very thing Mika found absent in his society. What good would be to bring sacrifices and yet you're unjustly treating your neighbor this way? It's pointless. Sacrifice means nothing in that regards. Remember, sacrifice was help cover over the sins, not to be a, a license to sin, but actually it meant to cover over. Well, what does Deuteronomy have to say one more time about Mishpat? In Deuteronomy 16, you don't have to turn it unless you have your finger already there. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, we have the following words here, verse 18 to 20. Actually, let's look at verse 9. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice, only justice you should pursue. That you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So we see that God does not want sacrifice up front. That should not be the first thing we think of. But what does he ask us to do? He asks us to love kindness. To love is usually associated with loyalty, covenant faithfulness. Now, love in our society tends to be likes, dislikes, personal preferences, merely emotional response, like I fell in love. These definitions in English will not do. It's a commitment to loyalty to justice. Kindness, or chesed, can be translated by a variety of words. In fact, our sign, we had a sign about chesed, loving kindness. It's acts of kindness, mercy, goodness, faithfulness, covenantal faithfulness. There's no one English word that can cover that gambit. Instead, uh, maybe the word loving kindness is closest to that uh, word. It has been employed to describe these words. In Psalm 136, chesed is used 26 times, showing God's faithfulness to his people. The psalmist clearly portrays God's kindness and faithfulness as the foundation for his actions and character. So if God deals with this vertical uh, loving kindness, our obligation to exercise love for a fellow man is on a horizontal sphere. We are to imitate his loving kindness towards others by displaying kindness, faithfulness, loyalty, commitment toward each other. On a personal note, you all showed loving kindness to me when I was in the hospital for a stroke. Many of you came by, sent cards, a present. Many of you uh, uh, was praying for me. Wonderful things. And I appreciate I say to God, Rabbah, for you all who is doing so. You express loving kindness on the horizontal here. If God is presenting loving kindness to us vertically, horizontally we should do the same toward one another. So the third thing is to walk humbly with your God. Vachatzne lechet im leheka. To walk humbly with your God. Sana means to humiliate by becoming lowly, humble. Some translations use the word walk circumspectly. Humility is a crucial for maintaining a relationship with God, is it not, with Hashem? Pride is the opposite. 
Remember how Satan was cast out of, out of heaven because of his pride. Pride is on top of the list of things God hates. In Proverbs 6, 16 and 19, it says here, there are six things the Lord hates, seven which are abomination to him. Right off the bat, he says, pride, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. I dare say that all that was being practiced in Micah's day. Pride also causes us to fall. In Proverbs 16, 18, and 21, 4, pride goes before destruction, a halty spirit before stumbling. In Proverbs 21, 4, a halty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. Humility is rewarded, however. In Proverbs 11:2, 2, when pride comes and comes dishonor, but with humble is wisdom. So walking in humility before Hashem and our fellow men and women introduces us to avenues of blessing. So we've been talking about all these things, what the Lord's required of us. This is what happened in Micah's day. How about today? Is there an application for us today? You know, these messages, it sounds like, well, he was talking to those people back then. The beauty of the Word of God is the fact that we can read something in the past as if they read the Columbus Dispatch this morning. Human nature doesn't change. The same thing that's going to Micah's day is in our day. And so let's look at some application for us today. So how should we walk or live out our lives before God and please Him? How do we know that we are genuinely seeking to please Hashem as opposed to deceptively and reflexively pondering sacrifice? If the Ruach HaKodesh points out a need or a change of behavior in our lives, and the first thing we consider is what can I give by way of sacrifice, we know we've crossed that line. This is none other than a preemptive strike against future obedience by offering a present and temporal sacrifice which does not affect behavior. If you're giving a sacrifice, generally the idea was if you gave a sacrifice, that's a substitute for any change of behavior. Because you could sacrifice if the cows come home and not change your life. It's meaningless. It's just a religious act. If we consider a future proposal of disobedience or course of action and say, I'm going to do this, but I'll make it up to God next week. That's a sacrifice. That's a sacrifice. So what does Yeshua have to say about obedience and sacrifice? In Luke 9, 23 to 24, he was saying this. If you have your Bibles, look at Luke 9, 23 to 24. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. Let's see what Yeshua has to say about obedience and sacrifice. What does he have to say about the matter? He was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come to me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits himself? You notice that in order to follow Yeshua, it requires self-sacrifice, not just offering a sacrifice. Did you see that? It's not a sacrifice. You are the sacrifice. That's fascinating. Notice that denying yourself is coupled with a voluntary take up your cross indicating there will be exchange of internal behavior leading to external sacrifice. So it's internal behavior leading to external sacrifice. You are making yourself that offering. In a me-first, consumer-obsessed culture, this does not set well. If you tell somebody, if you want to follow Yeshua, you have to give up, you have to lay your life down, be a sacrifice. How many people want to do that? I know, I, I, I want to realize me. 
I, I have things I want to do. In a self-absorbed culture, this doesn't fly, denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following him. We would rather give a costly sacrifice, which does not change our behavior, in order to keep on doing what is right in our own eyes, right? How about the Apostle Paul? He used the sacrifice and obedience in the following manner. Romans 12, 1 to 2, a familiar passage to most of you. Romans chapter 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So here, Paul describes a proper type of sacrifice which follows obedience rather than precedes it. He says to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Present your bodies. Don't just give a sacrifice. Hop on the altar yourself. You are becoming a sacrifice, which implies obedience. A conformed world would rather offer it an external sacrifice which pleases and appeases God's wrath rather than behavioral change and repentance. This type of worldly sacrifice is delusional thinking because it advocates substituting obedience for sacrifice. So uh, that's not going to fly. Rather than offering external, temporal, dead, unholy sacrifice, Paul says an internal, permanent, living, and holy sacrifice. Completely different. One of them is giving something outside of ourselves, a normal sacrifice. Here, it's you yourself becomes that offering. Obedience becomes that, that thing. We become the sacrifice through obedient living and following Messiah. So returning to that question, so what does the Lord require from us specifically in order to become a living sacrifice? Returning to Micah 6, 6 the question is asked, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Micah responds in verse 8, he has already told you about what is good. Not something new, it's not a new revelation. Nor is any change in previous command, but rather the clear, already revealed word of God. Now, had the people of Judah and Israel taken up time to hear the word of God, they would have already known what God wants. The knowledge of God does not happen in a vacuum. It, it ignores its secret revelation only for the priests. And the same holds true today. The real Kakodesh does not sanction laziness or inattentive reading of his word concerning what he desires. If we're not reading from the word of God, the Holy Spirit's not going to give you words that reflect back in your mind if you're not busy reading. He doesn't sanction laziness or inattentive reading. So we need to take the time and the energy and the kavanah, the intentionality to read the word of God to know what specific things he'll have us do. What God desires is not sacrifice, sacrifice devoid of obedience. He desires practicing justice to all people, extending mercy, kindness, and grace to all people, walking in humility and obedience with God. And to conclude, I would like to close with 10 observations I've, glean, I've gleaned from our study of sacrifice and behavioral, behavioral obedience. These aren't really like axioms per se, but I thought it was rather interesting, these 10 that I, I landed upon. Sacrifice can be a mere event. Behavioral change a lifestyle. Sacrifice is temporal and frequent. Behavioral change, perpetual and frequent. Sacrifice is external. It's outside ourselves. Behavioral change is internal. Sacrifice may be reactive to, to appease an angry God. Behavioral change is intentional to please a benevolent God. 
Sacrifice must follow obedience. Behavioral change leads to sacrifice. Number six, sacrifice is often motivated by fear or external circumstances. Behavioral change is motivated by love and appreciation for for Yeshua's sacrifice. Number seven, sacrifice may cost us, but behavior changes cost Yeshua more. Number eight, sacrifice may be an emotional response. Behavior change, deliberate. Number nine, sacrifice often replaces obedience. Behavioral change motivates obedience. Sacrifice does not necessarily please Adonai. Behavioral change always pleases him. So hopefully through this message today, this Darash, we understand that God does not necessarily want sacrifice, particularly if we're thinking of giving a sacrifice instead of obedience. Sacrifice should always follow obedience first. We get them turned around. So God does not want mere sacrifices devoid of any kind of meaning. We have to change our behavior. And you and I, maybe I'm talking to people here like in the choir. You're familiar with this passage. But sometimes God wants us to revisit passages whereby we can take the heart because we're always called upon to remember. We've got the reading Deuteronomy. Remember, remember, remember. We're to remember because you know what? Faithlessness has a short memory. It's easy to forget. So God wants us to remember to obey his merit and sacrifice. He wants obedience and change of heart. Rather, and we just sung, live to whore, a pure heart. He wants a pure heart, not just mere sacrifice. Let's close with prayer. Father, it's easy for us to want to give a sacrifice and substitution for obedience. We deceive ourselves in thinking that perhaps we're giving is, is, is legitimate. It may be costly. It may be a lot of something. But Father, you don't want just mere sacrifice from us. You want ourselves. You want our obedience, our love. You want us to walk with you, to guard your ways, to cling to you, to put our faith in you. So many things, Father, that involve walking with you. We're called to walk. We're called to have a halak, a walk that is pleasing to you. We want to be like Enoch, Hanok, to walk with his God. We want to be like Noah, who found favor in your sight. You want people, Father, who are willing to obey and love you and follow you and serve you, honor you, cling to you, rather than someone just merely giving a sacrifice to appease your wrath. Father, we thank you that you've shown us the way. He has shown you, O man, what does God, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to love justice and to walk humbly with your God, to follow him, to serve him, to cling to him. All these verbs we read about, Father, you want us to walk with you rather than just mere sacrifice. We thank you, Father, that you have shown us the news. We can remember again your word in Micah chapter 6, 5 through 8. Bashim Yeshua. Amen.